It was early morning on Saturday, 10 December 1932, when a forest green dress was spotted, hooked in a spiky thicket of lantana in Queen's Park. Nearby was a naked woman, lying face down on a bed of overgrown brambles and weeds beneath a coral tree. When local teenager Bernard Green saw the body, he did not, at first, believe his eyes. The air was still cool and an unseasonal dreamlike mist hung in the valleys of the residential suburb of Waverley as he walked south, away from Bondi and towards Randwick. He'd taken this journey countless times before and he was very familiar with the shortcuts through back lanes, vacant lots and public parks. Coming down a steep hill towards Randwick, he always cut through the grove of coral trees in Queen's Park because it was a little quicker and usually a little more pleasant than walking along the road. The teenager didn't see the body up close and from a distance the skin seemed to glow eerily in the early morning light. When he realised with horror what he was looking at, he stopped dead in his tracks. He ran from the scene, heading towards the nearest household he knew had a telephone. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis and today we're joined by author Dr Tanya Brotherton, a sociologist with a special interest in narrative life history and social history. Her latest book, The Killing Streets, uncovers Australia's first serial murders at a time where the term serial killer did not exist. Brutal murders, victims that are less than perfect, cops determined to get their man no matter the cost, sensationalist newspapers, and finally, a dubious suspect who may or may not be the killer. It all adds up to a case that is as maddening as it is fascinating. Tanya, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, as a true crime fan myself, particularly that of Australian crimes, I was quite fascinated by considering how large and sensational this case was that I'd never heard about it before. How did you first come across it? Uh, I came across it while I was researching another book um, and it kind of stayed with me. It was a newspaper article that I came across and it was about Eric Craig, which much of the book is about. And I kind of sat on it for a while. It was one of those projects where I picked it up for a while and then I would set it down And then we had another uh, couple of quite high-profile, very recent, horrible cases um, in Melbourne, Jill Maher and uh, Eurydice Dixon, and it it made me return to it with fresh eyes. Um, So, yeah, from that point on, I I approached it, as I do all of my projects, with a view to writing Mm. something um, more substantial about it. And, yeah, when I got into it... I was amazed at the twists and turns that this story has. Absolutely, and the parallels with with what's happening today as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a strange case, as horrifying as all of the cases in the book are, mm. um, because over the course of about 25 years, the book looks briefly and more deeply at about 10 yep. of these horrible sort of lust murders, I guess, so it, uh, whatever language you want to use when you're talking about these horrible things. As horrifying as it is to say, it's like every age has been defined by one of these crimes. Mm. When I was growing up in Brisbane, one occurred um, and it was sort of burned into the the um, consciousness of all the teenagers in yeah. Brisbane at the time. So 
yeah, I'm very aware that it's it's a horrible thing that just seems to stay with us. Absolutely. And in the research, it seems like there's so much more research than your previous two books. There's court transcripts and newspaper excerpts and everything. How, how different was this process of research for you? It was the volume with this was enormous, Absolutely, much yeah. more than the other two. Um, I think because the other two books could hone very narrowly in on a specific family, mm. this became much bigger well, I didn't want to spoil too much of the book mm. in this podcast because, as you said, the twists and turns in this case are have to be read to be believed. But I did want to get a bit of backstory and context on the, the landscape that the book takes place against. And one of those is that it takes place during the Great Depression. Mm. And a lot of people might have seen scenes of the Great Depression in books, films and TV, or they might have spoken to their relatives about it. But I guess it's harder to gauge how it was exactly in Australia. So I was wondering if you could give some of that context of what the Great Depression was like in Sydney. Yeah, look, I, I, I was, I'm fascinated by that as well. Mm. Uh, and one of the reasons why I think Eric Craig as a character was such an interesting figure to zoom in on is because he really was experiencing the Great Depression. Absolutely. Uh, you know, he, was, he had been out of work for several years. Uh, he queued at the docks to get the dole uh, down at the wharves. Um, every week mm. uh, or otherwise would have been without an income and he was trying to look after two children in an era where a lot of women didn't work mm. and so having a male bread breadwinner really was very, very important. Um, there was no real social welfare system in the sense of the way that we think about it. Yeah. So without work, you were really, really vulnerable. So um, Eric Craig in part was living off his mother as mm. well. It's hard, for, I think, for us to imagine the risk that people faced when they didn't have work. So on one side, there was Eric Craig's story as a family man trying mm. to manage the responsibilities associated with that. But there was also the depression being experienced and felt through the victims. So the three women that I guess kind of cover sort of the first half of the book um, and I guess the it was the compressed way that those murders occurred within mm. kind of a six, seven, eight-month period, I guess, within uh, 1932. Um, they were all working as prostitutes yeah. and it was very clear that it was um, out of desperation um, because it was Absolutely, one of the more yeah. uh, recession-proof um, occupations that you could yeah. participate in. So it was a way to get money uh, when other options were not available to those women. Because jobs were being given to men. Given the whole breadwinning society that you know Australia was built off during this time, it mm. would have been quite emasculating for a, for a man, for a head of the family, to not be able to sustain that image. So would the social pressure of the Depression potentially have caused a lot more, I guess, violence and aggression in men at the time? Yeah, I'd never actually thought about it that way, but that is a really interesting um, way of seeing it. Mm. And it... it possibly explain some of the other cases that I won't obviously go into too much because uh, yeah. I, I always tend to overshare when I talk about the books, but I, I think that is also an interpretation that could be read into some of the other cases. Mm. I'm wondering if that's why perhaps in a particular case that I'm thinking of, which I won't mention, but you'll probably mm. understand where the the perpetrator was given quite a lenient sentence given the severity of the crime. Yeah. Although I think that took place 
in the 40s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, but it was still, you know, post-war, yes. I guess, like people yep. taking a softer look at men because of what they went through in the war or something yes. like that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And what you mentioned about um, sex workers as well leads mm. me into my next question, which was the attitude towards sex workers at the time, which the book deals with a lot because police and the media and society at large didn't have a very favourable opinion on sex workers at the time. Um, what exactly was the state of sex work in during the Great Depression? Because I know it wasn't decriminalised until about 95, if I'm yeah, not mistaken, so yeah. it was illegal. Yeah, absolutely. I write history as a sociologist, if that makes sense. So um, I guess the interpretation that I brought to the events was linked very much to the car and I go Mm. into that a little bit more. That was a really fascinating part of the book. Yeah, and look, other historians might view those events differently but in terms of these cases and the level of risk that the women were taking in order to engage in sex work, Mm. um, the car was intimately involved with that because it provided physically a vehicle um, but, you know, uh, also a it was a place of business. Mm. Um, And part of that on my reading of the events was tied to the level of pressure um, that the police had placed on the close focus around Surrey Hills and those stories in Sydney are very famous um, around the brothels in that time because we had some very famous madams running those brothels. Um, But I think one of the consequences of that pressure of trying to kind of clean out the streets and get women off the streets and make um, sex work less visible, part of the consequence was that it was sort of pushed into a different business model. Yeah. Um, and, and I think these cases are tied to that um, because women took risks and um, it made – it became a very very invisible thing, if that makes sense. And I, I think – I'm not giving up too much, too much away, but one – the women were all left in very public places, but mm. it was very clear. In some cases they'd walked there, um, but in most cases they'd sort of been driven there. And speaking of the parallels, as we did before, it was quite interesting to see that the reputation of sex workers between then and now, how they're treated in the media and by people hasn't really changed that much, even since being decriminalised, especially when sex workers are unfortunately killed in their line of work. It seems like they get so much less focus or they get so much more negative focus than do other women who are murdered. Yeah, absolutely. And, in fact, one of the things that I struggled with a little bit was the language Mm. around um, how we talk about these things. And in the end, um, because sex work really, that is a label that we would use now. The the politically correct term. It wasn't a label that was used then. It did not exist. Um, And in the book... Um, the women in these occupations are described as prostitutes yeah. and the State Library uses that term. It, it was the term that was used and I thought as conflicted as we feel about that term, it's an important thing to to put in the book. It's an important part of history to, yes. to recognise. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It just didn't feel right to talk about them as sex workers yeah. um, because they weren't referred to in that way. Mm. And dialing back on the police as well, I was wondering what the state of the, the police uh, force was like at the time. As you say in the book, it's a uh, time before serial killers were really known. I don't yeah. think that was until the 60s or 70s. Yeah. Um, and forensics weren't really nearly as much of a thing. So it seemed like the police were quite 
ill-equipped to deal with the magnitude of the case. Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think they were really corrupt as well. I mean, they were horribly corrupt. It's Police historians may have a different view on that Mm. and probably know a lot more about it than I do. But, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that was certainly the interpretation that I brought um, to this material. Yes, they took blood samples. They... They clipped nail pairings and, and those sorts of things from the victims when they were found. There wasn't a, a, a lot they could do with it. They could determine that it was human blood, maybe yeah, a blood, blood tape. Type. Yeah. Other than that, uh, fingerprints they could take and, and, in fact, they became kind of ingenious about how they got fingerprints or lifted fingerprints mm. off victims. There's one case I talk about in the book where a victim um, had been left in water and yeah. they they peeled, basically peeled the skin off the victim's hand like a glove in order to get, a, a, you know, an image of what the fingerprint looked like. But then they really couldn't do a lot other than basic identification. So there's no mm. DNA, there's none of that stuff that we kind of use now to link a suspect to, um, to a particular crime or crime scene. So in the absence of all that... What we had was them trying to drum up a whole lot of witnesses mm. um, and run around madly doing probably, you know, what was one of the biggest, you know, door-to-door. Um. Yeah, you mentioned <laughs> that. It was something like a, th- like a thousand, thousand or over yeah. a thousand doors in yeah. one day. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I, I think out of desperation mm. um, because with three murders occurring in such a short space of time, the pressure was on. Um, so they had to find someone mm. and so they did. The police did quite mishandle the case. Do you think that was because of the the lack of technology and and means available to them, or was there something more, I guess, sinister or organised at play? It's hard. I I struggled a little bit with how to write that yeah. as well, because there is no doubt they had a level of challenge that's difficult yeah. for us to comprehend today. It, it it would have been really hard police work. I also think they were corrupt. Yeah. I mean, I, I even the way that they engaged in the interrogation. Now, we know that people can be bullied into giving confessions. I think they knew that too. Mm. Um, they had and, to know. Yeah, yeah they had to know. Um, so I think it's a bit of both yeah. in answer to your question probably. And my final part of um, getting some context around the landscape of the book is to deal with the media as well because the media plays a huge role in how the case unfolds and Mm. how it's perceived by the public um creating public panic shaming the police and even influencing witnesses and the trial that ultimately occurred it's almost quite unbelievable how outlandish the media acts during this time could you give a bit of a context on the state of journalism and print media in this time and i guess how they were able to get away with what they did well, the one thing that I have found fascinating, and it's come up in the other two books that I've written as well, is how closely connected the media were to the police. Yeah. So they used each other in the firm belief that it was in the best interest to get as much information out as possible uh, to make the police peer, appear that they were always in a good light. That mm. kind of went a bit sour with this case yeah. because um, some very it became very obvious that not enough was happening. So, yeah, I, I think that's probably one of the things I've learned over the course of all three books. Um, there was a deep connection. There was a lack of awareness, I think, that mm. if you keep 
printing photographs <laughs> of the victim and doctoring and them. And, yeah. and doctoring them and try, at the same time trying to drum up witness statements and using that photograph, which is what the police did, they would keep going back using a photograph combined with um, lineups. And they would keep repeating that process until they got the answer that they wanted because they very definitely wanted to nail Craig for it. And yeah. I don't think I'm, I'm giving too much away to, to talk about that. And, of course, I'm not involved in the police and I'm not involved in the media, but just in seeing the, the more careful way that the police manage the media these days in yeah. terms of controlling the amount of information that they release so that it doesn't then tarnish an investigation later on. There was little regard given for that back then. And the legal system as well finally plays a huge role, at least halfway through the book, with the trials of, mm. um, of Eric Craig. What was the legal system like back then in terms of how they you know, could go about prosecuting criminals? Craig was prosecuted. Uh, he, he faced many trials, let's yeah. put it that way. So he was tried over and over again, for even for the one crime. Yeah, which today it's, seems impossible. Yeah, it's, it's just extraordinary. But it was also an environment where he... Getting good legal representation was difficult. Mm. He, they weren't a wealthy family. Um, from my memory, and it's been, obviously it's been a couple of years since yeah. I've actually written the book, but uh, the legislation supporting effectively court-appointed, mm. I don't know that we use that language, but um, public purse-supported representation, that was only a very recent thing. Craig had very little control mm. over the defence that was... Um, presented on his behalf. And even in terms of the documentation, no one says it, but within the case, there's one case where a lawyer refers to, refers to, well, look, I'm basically standing up in court and I'm representing this man for his life mm. because you face the death penalty if you time, were convicted yeah. of murder. it was, The stakes were high. Um, and the lawyer makes reference to, well, I got these papers last night. Yes, very different Aside from the brutality of the crimes, there's a lot in the book that's quite quite maddening as to the police procedure and the way that the victims are treated, all mm. of that. What else surprised or shocked you while you were on your fact-finding mission for the book? Probably the fact that even in the context of it being a very judgmental society, mm. so little was done, particularly with some of those earlier cases. So there's a lot of focus in the book over the cases that happened in 1932. Mm. But many of the women that died um, over the course of that 25 years were engaged in sex work. Mm. And it was very, very clear that no one really gave a damn. Yeah. And that shouldn't have shocked me and it still did. Well, yeah, given our, given how our... Society treats yeah, sex, the, sex the, workers we, now. It shouldn't right. be surprising. It but. shouldn't be surprising because we know how abhorrent yeah. um, and the level of judgment around those activities then in the 20s because it deals with the 20s as well. Um, but I was still really shocked that um, as a society we could have let that happen. Mm. Well, the book has a really great quote where it compares um, the, the worker working on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, how he risked his life every day mm. to feed his family and the, the sex worker trying to feed her family yep. doesn't receive the same regard. Yeah, okay, there we go. That's yeah. that, It really did shock me because there was so much that if you look at news of that time, it was saturated with stories mm. about the bridge. 
it opened that year. Yeah. So it and in all of the decade leading up to that, it was all anyone talked about. The lead up to building it, then the process of building it. You're absolutely right. And there's very heroic stories about the workers and the level of risk that they were forced to undertake mm. and that some men lost their lives during that process. Yes, the parallel did not apply um, to women that were also trying to look after their families. Yeah, uh, and there's one case um, that uh, I think I talk about it at a couple of different points, but one of the women that died... Um, yeah, she had a daughter that mm. she was looking after. Um, yeah, very sad. Yes, well, without spoiling too much of the book, I did want to ask you a couple of questions about your interest in true crime. I think everyone who's got that kind of morbid bug where they're interested in true crime has, they remember the case that kind of started that interest. Do you remember what yours was? Oh, gosh. Do you know what? I actually think it was probably Sharon Phillips. We talked a little bit about it before Mm. Um, and Sharon's body's never been found Um, but Sharon was a I grew up in Brisbane Mm. and Sharon disappeared when I was a teenager she worked in our local fruit shop peaches and cream wow okay and she was on Ipswich Road heading home one night and within the space of a very short period of time in the era before mobile phones her car broke down She walked to a nearby public phone booth, Mm. called her boyfriend, I think, to say, you know, can come and pick me up. And in the space of time, and I think it was half an hour or some crazy amount of time, he arrived and she was gone. And that then became something that Brisbane, I think, it's still, I think even last year, it was in the news media again. I actually think if I really thought about it, that's probably what it was. And it's been there all that time. Mm. And it seems a bit morbid to call a case your favourite, so to speak, but is there a case worldwide that springs to mind as your, the case that you're fascinated with the most? Look, I, uh, I was obsessed with the Stephen Avery case, I think, like a lot of people were, mm. um, and I continue to follow it. The true crime aspect of it, fascinated by that, but I think also because of my background in sociology, the level of... Well, I should say the Brendan Dassey and Stephen Avery, those two cases being related because his nephew was mm. also implicated and was that, it... That was the Making a Murderer one? Yes, yeah. Making a Murderer. And um, young Brendan Dassey is still in prison for yeah. being involved in that crime. Uh, it's alleged, it's, you know. Uh, so he was put away for it. But um, because of my background in sociology and we do a lot... My background's qualitative, mm. interviewing... It is very, very easy to corrupt that process of interviewing someone. Absolutely. To get a young person who's vulnerable, who is intimidated to say whatever they need to say to get themselves out of that situation. And I I think if there's a favourite, it would probably be that in the sense Mm. that on multiple levels, um, yeah, it's maddening as to use your yeah. word, you know, um, and it's fascinating as well um, and wrong, terribly wrong. Yeah, if you want to get an idea of how police can sway an investigation, I think making a murder is probably the best way yeah. to look. Yeah, Kids do say yes when they mean no. Yeah. Kids do say yes just to get out of a, a room because someone's heavying them. They absolutely do those things. Um, so, yeah. 
And if it's not too um, too forward to ask what your next book might be about, are you able to give us a little sneak yeah, preview? Yeah, absolutely. Because my focus is social history, as much as we mm. call it true crime, they're very social history-driven books. Yeah. So my next one is on the poisoning cases of the late 40s and the 50s. So again, there's a gender okay, story. Yeah. Um, so the thallium cases that have been written about quite a bit. And I often try to pick something that hasn't been written on before. That's what yeah. I like to do. And the, these ones have been written on, the thallium um, poisoning cases. There is a little bit around, but I, th- I hope I'm approaching it in a slightly different way. So it'll be the 40s, mm. 50s. That's another one I haven't heard of, so I'm mm. looking forward to it. Yeah. And that wouldn't happen to be related to the Somerton Man case at all? No. It's, I was listening I to... Yeah, he was I, um, alleged to be poisoned, but they couldn't find any in his system yeah. or something like that. But so it I'm was, wondering if... It, look, I, I know it wasn't, yeah. but it was plagued with the same challenges. Mm. Um, we talked a little bit about it before, didn't we, about the fact that the level of science... Yeah. Uh, it had, not it was a different of set of tools. Yeah. Um, that the police had available to them. But, yeah, isn't that a fascinating mm. case? The well, I one. look forward to reading it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Oh, Tanya. thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.